Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. Welcome back to the soundtrack to the life. I am still Chris. I probably will be for the foreseeable future. Sam is back. Hey, Sam. Hello, hello. And we are here today talking about Concrete Blonde's 1990 album, Bloodletting. Sam, tell me about this piece of music. What's your relationship with this? I was a disaffected 20-year-old when this album came out. And it was one of those albums that was what we were looking for. It was just a precursor to the whole grunge scene. It was so we we ha- didn't really have Nirvana just yet. They hadn't broken, and and we didn't have like Sound Gardens and and Alice in Chains. So this was one of those albums that t- sort of appealed to the angry young man that I thought I wanted to be, if that makes any sense. Didn't sound like anything else that was coming out of the time. It was almost like the entry into that wonderful age in the early '90s where we got this really great alternative music. Yeah, it absolutely was. It took me 38 seconds of bloodletting the first track before I was thinking that was weird. I didn't get more into these guys before now. Like, this is exactly the sort of thing that I would have wanted during this period of my life. Exactly. It's one of those albums. That, I mean, if this was also right around the time that Anne Rice and, and her Lestat series were at the height of popularity. So it just tied in beautifully into the, those of us who were kind of into that vampire culture and wanted more about the vampires. Even though this album isn't about vampires, there's a lot of those themes in it. References to New Orleans and, and bloodletting and You Were the Vampire. All those those things are in this album, which help give it sort of that horror gothic feel, even though it's about, mostly about relationships. Yeah, a lot of it is. Joey, I recognized, obviously. That song was on the radio all the time. And rightly so. It's excellent. It sounds really plaintive and authentic and timeless. And you want to scream it out of a car window on your way home at two o'clock in the morning. Just one of those weird classic late 80s, early 90s bridge singles. Absolutely. uh, From before we figured out what the 90s were going to sound like. Yeah. And this, to a certain extent, I think kind of informed a certain subset of that sound. And it really saddens me that this was sort of their only successful album. Because there is not a bad song on this album. Yeah. There are bands where you play their one song and you understand why they never got another song. Like nobody's listening to I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. I'm going, I need more. (laughs) Why did this not catch on in a bigger way? But this could have definitely, I feel like if it had come out two years later, like if it had been released in the immediate aftermath of Nevermind rather than immediately before, and it could have been swept up into that and gained momentum from it. Uh, Quite possibly. I mean, they're two albums, two or three subsequent albums. They, kind of just fell off into the ether. Like they just never really got the attention that they needed or deserved um, because her voice alone is worth listening to. Yeah. She has a really rich voice with a lot of character into it. She's cutting a really dramatic, like Susie Sue kind of profile on these songs. I would agree with you there. It's, it's, it's she definitely was inspired by those sort of mid eighties goth singers for sure. Yeah. She's got like, She's cutting that profile, but the guitars here are uh, crunchier and more muscular. That's like, a very good way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, they're like a tougher, they're like American Susie and the Banshees, basically. 
but angrier. Yeah. If that's if possible. <laughs> and I guess she is like, this is being pitched at the same audience at about the same time. Like this was a period in music where goth bands, goth bands were not getting on the radio, but goth adjacent bands were. Well, this uh, was a weird time where the, all the goth bands that we really knew were kind of fading or fading away. Like, Susie and Bauhaus had, had kind of broken up and The Cure wasn't really doing anything new and they kind of gone poppy with Friday I'm in Love. So people were looking for something to fill that void too. Yeah. So these guys for a hot minute get on the radio. Depeche Mode for a hot minute gets on the radio as we kind of flail around trying to figure out what the 90s are going to sound like. Which is always, I like transition points in music when nobody really knows what's going on so anything can happen. That's when you get to all the weirdest work. And interesting. Because this is like around the same time that Four Non Blondes also kind of had their one big hit, right? And they got confused quite a bit, obviously, for obvious reasons, especially considering they both have very similar strong voices. Yeah, I'll buy that. Like, they sound structurally very different from each other, but they are definitely fronted by a woman who could belt like nobody's business. Exactly. And the funny thing is, is, is I still get the, the um, Jeanette and, um, oh, what's her name from Four Non Blondes? Um, mixed up. Oh yeah. Right? Even as I listened to this, I, I I was seeing the lead singer of Four Non Blondes in my head, even though I knew it wasn't her. If, you could, if that makes any sense at all, it's just because they 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 were so closely sort of compared together, I guess. Yeah. Now that I think about it, I definitely see how it's 1991. You would make that kind of connection between the two of them. Yeah. Again, you write very different types of music, but. The similarities in the names and the, the, uh, these very strong, striking women, too. They both had a very striking look to them. Like, Jeanette's kind of got a, a very unique, gothy look to her. And then the singer from Four Non Blondes, whose name I'll remember after we finish talking. I have zero doubt. Yeah. She has, a, has sort of had a, had a very distinct look. But they were also similar looking in the, in the fact they're both sort of dark hair, slightly scary, gothy-looking women. Yeah, Absolutely. And this is, um, it doesn't surprise me to learn that Concrete Blonde had a really distinctive visual sense because the album cover on this is absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, I have to agree. And I think that was one of the things where I'd heard one song and I saw the cover. I'm like, I have to get this. Yeah, 100%. One blood-flecked white rose among red gives you an immediate sense of who these guys are and what they're going to try to accomplish. And then when you listen, it very much does not disappoint. In a perfect world, they would have been on the radio all through the first half of the 90s. Yeah, and I mean, Joey is, is certainly their, sort of their breakout single. I, I mean, uh, Tomorrow Wendy did reasonably well on the radio. I remember hearing that on the radio. And then Bloodletting got some play, but it, just, it, it didn't grab on the way that Joey did. Yeah. Joey is the one on here that actually sounds like radio music from this period. It is the most radio-friendly. Yeah. Every song on here is great. This record really works. But Joey is the one that, if you had never heard it, you would hear and go, oh, yeah, this will be on the radio. Exactly. The thing about that song is a lot of people would buy this album expecting more Joey and gone, holy shit, this is not what I expected. I yeah. think they would have enjoyed it, but I don't think they would have realized that they, they would, I think they would have been expecting more of that radio-friendly stuff when you're getting... One of those albums, it's, it doesn't really tell a story, but every song does tell its own story. Yeah, which may have, in the long term, been part of the reason that they did not become a bigger band than this. Because I definitely could see that alienating 
very casual listeners? Oh, for sure. Because it's, it is, it's a very dark, somber album. Even though some of the songs are a little more up-tempo, none of the stories are happy. And then the lead-off single is a love song and a sing-along. Yes. I could definitely see some suburban moms buying this, taking it home, and then wondering what they'd gotten themselves into. Yeah, I would say that's a, a good thing. That'd be, that'd be like they put it on the car and they have to stop because they're, they, they're so blown away by what they've heard. And not necessarily in a, in, a, in a good way or a bad way, but just truly stunned because that first, I mean, the opening riff of Bloodletting even, right? It's like, whoa, wait a minute. This is... Yeah, it commands your attention. Heavy. Yeah. We've both picked records, I think, for this month that hit the ground running and do not wait for a prospective listener to catch up. That's a really good way of putting it. I, I, I was funny because we, it's interesting that we both picked albums with really strong female front people. I don't think that was intentional, but we just kind of gravitated towards that. And I think given sort of what prompted our themes, which it's indicative of where the darker side of music sometimes comes from. And people don't realize that women are angry, um, especially in the early 90s. And rightfully so. I'm not taking that away by any means. But there's an anger there that's very much conveyed in this particular album. Yeah, and it does a great job of balancing a sense of menace with a sense of propulsion. And hope. There's a, there's a lot of hope in this. Like Joey even says, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not angry anymore. That's a difficult thing to pull off. Like when you have songs that come off as really weighty and really sinister, after three or four in a row, they can start to feel like they're dragging, but they're pulling off the balance really expertly here. They really are. I, I think probably the toughest song to listen to is Caroline. It's the one that doesn't quite fit into the rest of the album. It's still a beautiful song and, if, and it, it does complement the rest of the album. Because it's right in the middle, it, but it's this beautiful, airy piece compared to the rest of the album. And the last time we talked about it had, it had the exact opposite, right? Because we talked about the Draconian Crackdown, which is just about the middle of the last album we talked about. And it was a really heavy piece right in the middle of something that was denser, but not as heavy, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, they do keep things moving. These folks are from Los Angeles, yeah? That's correct, yeah. You can really feel it. Like It doesn't have the same sense of overbearing gloom. This is like early The Cure filtered through Motley Crue, if that makes any sense. No, like that have, makes, that's a really interesting analogy. I like it. Pretty appropriate, too. Yeah, it's the same sense of drama and the same sense of gloom and of menace. But it never stops moving because when you come up through Los Angeles' 80s hard rock scene, not moving doesn't feel like an option. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. And I think it's interesting you brought up like Motley Crue and that sort of hair band thing, because certainly this is an answer to that, um, as much as grunge was. It has that same sort of sense of pace that those hair bands do, but I mean, the music's obviously very different, and lyrically, it's far more powerful. But it still has that, like you said, this manicness to it. Yeah, this is what the 90s would have sounded like if bands had decided to go with the next progression and to bring depth and meaning to 80s hard rock rather than burn it all down and start over with something new. Yeah. Again, I can't say that I disagree with that. And I, I wish we'd seen more of it because this was a terribly influential album on me in my, in my early 20s and, and one that still sits in my collection and it still gets pulled out periodically. Some of the songs are on our phones for in the car. Like my wife and I both just love this particular album yeah it's easy to understand why they definitely deserved to have more of a run but and it's 
basically at the point where it has become a catchphrase on this show. Never mind by Nirvana murdered a lot of bands who did not deserve to die. That's true. It's it's very, very true. I mean, she's continued to make music and she's released music right up until the, the 2015, which given the sort of letdown of, of their, their, this is their third album, their subsequent albums just didn't live up to those expectations. Yeah, because this feels like a band on the upswing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, given, yeah, like I said, this is a third album and it's, the, and it's a, definitely a breakthrough album. Yeah, the, this should have been the moment where the world is at your fingertips. And then, yeah, they released two uh, two albums that were good, yeah. but they just weren't this good. And I think that they suffered from the rotating lineup syndrome because Concrete Blonde is essentially Jeanette and the other founding member whose name now escapes me. I'm terrible with names tonight. Uh, oh, wait, if you've listened to the show, our show, I'm always terrible with names. <laughs> they always come to me afterwards. But yeah, this was just the two of them are sort of the core members. And I think that what they ended up with for Bloodletting was that perfect chemistry. Yeah, like they found a lineup that perfectly suited what they were trying to do. Yeah, and, then and I just don't think they were... It. Yeah, I don't think they ever, they ever really recaptured it exactly. And it happens. You see that happen with bands all the time. Sometimes you make a change and it works for the better. And then sometimes you make a change and it results in a less than stellar work. And I mean, really, even if you're on the radio the once, it's one more time than I've ever been on the radio, especially for an alternative band that is this weird. Yes. There's probably some chance that they went into this album cycle kind of assuming that they were just not the sort of band that gets on, or on the radio. I kind of get the feeling that, yes, that was their thing going. is like, we're going to do what we feel like doing. And if people buy it, that's great. If they don't, they don't. And I, I think that that's the right attitude for this type of music. If you're not going in there to be a pop star and you just want to make music because you love making music, then this is the this is that album that epitomizes it to me. Yeah, this is the one that lets you continue gigging for the rest of your life. Exactly. Off the back of one surprise song that you didn't see coming. That's exactly it. And the strength of that single, I mean, you still hear it on the radio. Oh, yeah. Joey is an era classic. Like, everybody knows that song. People who've never heard that song know that song. It's just cultural information that you are expected to be familiar with. No, exactly. Exactly. I, I mean, people don't listen to the radio like they used to. Uh, I mean, it's all Spotify and streaming services and stuff like that, but uh, or, or on your device. But even now, like, there's some songs that just permeate our culture, whether yeah. we realize it or not. And this this is one of those songs because it's just such a poignant, powerful song. It's a love song and it's an apology. And it's like you actually feel the heartbreak when you hear her singing it. Yeah, she sings the shit out of that song as well. Like she is, she is one of those powerful vocalists that no doubt has tricked a generation of young women at karaoke bars into believing that they can pull off Joey. Oh my, yes. No, don't. It's a trick. As somebody who's tried songs that I shouldn't try at karaoke, yes, <laughs> this is one of those songs that I certainly would never try. I probably would about four drinks in. And then immediately regret it, if we're being completely honest. Like, after the first, like, line, you'd be going, what the hell was I thinking? Yes. Because I get very confident at karaoke bars in ways that are not always warranted. I am definitely the dude that, yeah, I'll order another round. Hey, do you think I could pull off Def Leppard? Yeah. That, you know, I cannot. I definitely know I can't. I, I definitely can't. I just want to just sort of, I'm, so I'm doing some research as we're talking here. Because I was pretty sure that Joey was on the pump up the volume soundtrack, or it was in the movie. 
one of the songs off this album was, which was also released in 19, uh, the movie was released in 1990. Um, I think that was one of the things that brought them to public attention. Oh, yeah, that can't but help. Yeah, because that movie was huge. Yeah, that movie was everywhere. Exactly the same as this album was aimed at me as a 20-year-old yeah. struggling young man trying to figure out my place in this world in a transition between the consumerism of the 80s and the changes that we were seeing coming in the 90s, right? Which eventually was personified by Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and all the other bands that I listed there from the grunge era. And yeah, blockbuster soundtrack. So that would have definitely put them in front of a huge audience. Yeah, and, kinda... and they're not they're not on the track listing, but I know they were in that movie. They're, 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 one of their songs was in the movie, but I don't think they were actually made it onto the soundtrack. That checks out. Movie set or radio station is going to uh, have more songs than it can fit. Yeah, that's exactly true, yes. And it might have been a rights thing. They could get it to, for the film, but not for the soundtrack. It happens all the time, too. That can also be. Man, that was a weird period. Do people today understand movie soundtracks? I don't know. Like, as a thing that you go to a place and buy? I want to listen to the music from this movie that I also liked. It's funny because, yeah, the early 90s to about 2004, 2005 was when the sound the, the soundtrack was really a big thing where you had to get really good music for your soundtrack. Yeah, 100%. Like the soundtrack was frequently going to be bigger than the movie. In, in some cases, it was. Yeah, I would definitely sure. listen to Trainspotting's soundtrack before I watched Trainspotting again. That one, yeah. You know what? I loved the movie Trainspotting, but it's one of those movies that is just so challenging to watch. You just don't want to watch it again. Yeah, it's kind it's of exhausting. One of, those, one of those great movies that I never want to see again. Plus, and this is a problem with um, mid-late 90s, early 2000s pop culture. I feel like rewatching it now, I would realize that these are terrible people. Oh, I knew they were terrible people when I was watching it, but they were so charismatic. Yeah, that but in like a kind of forgave them. Yes, it's because they are. They're awful people. Every single yeah. one of them. Yeah, every single person in that flick is trash. And you overlook it because you like him and because, like, you're 18, 19. It's not like you're any better. I wasn't a heroin addict at 18, 19. That but, is true. But certainly I was narcissistic and selfish and not as considerate of the people around me as maybe I should have been. By that. Harkening back to the dope steampunk movie that I want based on a Rasputina record, I will never forgive Hollywood for not giving me a sexy late 80s vampire movie set in the L.A. rock scene about a farm girl from Iowa who comes to Los Angeles in search of fame and fortune and then falls in with sexy glam vampires played by Concrete Blonde. Oh, that would have been so good. I would have watched the shit out of that movie. That would have been yes. a B-movie that failed in the theaters, found a second life on DVD, and everyone loved yeah, it would definitely be on that list of cult classics you have to see. It would have been genius and brilliant. And this, because uh, I, I did, of course, re-listen before we talked. And I'm sitting here going, this is a soundtrack. Yeah, it really feels like one. There's not a storyline through this, but there's an emotional through line. Exactly. And you could, you could almost sort of visualize in your head the scene where the song would be playing. Considering that at least three of the songs are named after somebody, right? You've got Caroline, Joey, and then Tomorrow Wendy. You can almost see the story there of a, sort of these broken relationships and the damage that she's done throughout time as a vampire. Yeah, the uh, the lead character is going to be named Wendy. She's going to get to L.A., fall in love with Joey, who is one of the members of Concrete Blonde. It goes without saying that this movie is going to star late 80s Winona Ryder. I have it all planned out. Oh, I could see that. <laughs> right? I could totally see that. All that I need is Hollywood money and a time machine. Yes, and and, and unfortunately... One of those things exists. Hollywood money is, might be a myth. Um, yeah, I'm sure with a time machine, I could figure out a way to get money. That would, Fair I enough. Should, I should be fine. Uh, Tomorrow Wendy is a weird song to end this album. 
given the record that has led up to it. I did not expect this. Like, it works. I enjoyed it very much. I just didn't expect for it to go out on a whisper rather than a scream. But it kind of leaves you in more of a pensive, reflective type of a mood. And see, Tomorrow Wendy I, is is one of my favorite songs on the album. Like, it's one that I continue to go back to, and it's one that gets played in my car all the time. By it's, it's on my wife's phone. It's on my phone. It's just a song that we both really love. But yeah, yeah, I think it's a great way to cap it because it's about an ending. So it's I think that that's why it works as well as it does there. Even though you're not really expecting it, you aren't expecting it to go out on such a soft note. But given the the sort of theme of the album, it's perfect because it is such a soft note. Yeah, it really. Um brings everything together. One of the other music shows that I listen to, the host demands that a good ending to a record should be like seven minutes long and build and build and build into a giant cacophony. And this is the opposite of that being done really well. Yeah, absolutely, yes. I don't know if I agree with him that every album should end that way. Um, I don't know that every album should end that way. I have enjoyed albums that do end that way very much. For sure, as have I, but I, I think that the final song should suit the album, and, the, and as this particular song does. Yeah, like it, it just caps the experience that you've just had. Exactly, and it just sort of lets you come down a little bit, right? Even yeah. though it's, it's, it's such a dark theme for this song. Again, it is about telling somebody that they are at the end of their life. Do these guys still tour? Their last recorded output was 2015, you mentioned. Well, Jeanette's was. They haven't been together. They, they, I think they reunited in 2012 and broke up again in 2012. Yeah, they haven't been a performing band really since about 1995. They've had a couple of brief reunions, but nothing has come of it. That's a shame. It truly is. Although, I don't know, maybe keep them as young and vital at their yeah. creative peak rather I, than catching them on the nostalgia circuit. I would say, yeah, that's probably a good idea because, I, I, I mean, she's now 62, 63 years old. So she, I think she's in a different place, and I don't know that performing these songs would be the thing that she'd want to do anymore. She's not that person anymore. Yeah, if she wants to tour around, she'll come up with an album of new songs. I caught Adam Ant recently performing Friend or Foe and then a selection of his early 80s hits. And it was very fun, and I enjoyed it very much. It didn't like deepen my understanding of Adam Ant in a meaningful way. It's funny because I, I actually watched... The video that you that you had posted on Twitter and I think on Facebook too, actually. But I, I watched it in one of those formats, and I'm like, I just can't see him singing those the, the Goody Two Shoes and and all those '80s songs anymore. Just, he's not that person anymore. Yeah, and it doesn't. Um, I mean, like it's a fun night out. Um, oh, it, it still would have been fun for sure. But yeah, if she wants to tour, she can put out new music and then tour behind that. Concrete Blonde does not have the kind of catalog where people are demanding that you play the greatest hits. No, she'd have to play, she might have to do Joey, possibly Tomorrow Wendy, but because this, this album just feels incredibly personal to me. She's putting a lot of herself into these lyrics. That is definitely the case. And I don't think that she's that person who felt that anymore. I think those are things hard, hard things to perform live when you're that much past it. Yeah, none of us are the same person that we were 30 years ago. Exactly. Or if you are, get your act together. Please. And it's not like the Rolling Stones who are, who are 90 and still touring, but they never, I don't think they've ever written anything this personal. Yeah, this is someone's labor of love laid out before you. Exactly. You feel it. And, and I think that's part of what makes the album so beautiful. You're not just listening to the lyrics. You're not just feeling this, the, the, the music, but you feel how you imagine she felt when she's writing that song. 100%. 
This is one of those records where it did not surprise me to hear the follow-ups that they had to this were not this, because how could it be? There is a very specific, introspective, I'm putting myself on the line for you energy to this that a band cannot recreate on a two-year schedule because that is the schedule on which they record and release albums. Typically, yeah, unless you're Tool. Then you can take as long as you fucking want. (laughs) Yep. But even Tool had several years where they were having to follow some kind of schedule in order to build the goodwill that allowed them to get away with that nonsense. That's true. Those those early years, they had, well, even then, they they still push their luck. I bet, yeah. but three four years. But as a rule, when you're under a label, they want something every couple of years in order to keep you front and present in, in people's minds. Yeah, they would prefer it. Unless you're Geffen, who spent most of the '90s paying bands with Rose in their names to not record albums. Yeah, that's another thing entirely. It's another another very long gap between albums, but for different reasons. Yeah. I still got to listen to that Tool record. Is it great? You know what? I have not listened to it myself yet either. I just haven't had time. At the time we're recording this, I am in the midst of the all the horror planning, and I'm taking the time to do this because certainly this I wanted to do it. But yeah, the, the, I haven't had a lot of time to sort of sit down and just listen to something like that requires attention like that. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm doing this for all the horror, and then I'm going to try to get ahead of it in order to do National Novel Writing Month in November. Ooh, that could be interesting. Yeah, I do it every year. It is very fun. Um, And then I have to listen to the new Tool, because Mike, who has showed up on this show a bunch of times, has angrily demanded that I talk about Tool with him for an hour for this. Fair enough. I I mean, Tool bears talking about. It doesn't matter which album you pick. Yeah, Tool has a very distinctive vibe. In terms of a less internationally renowned bands who showed up in a how are you even still a band future heads put out their first one in eight years recently that's insane loudly announced by the way we're still a band and have been this whole time we never said we broke up you know what i guess you didn't i mean they're one of those bands where you're like well you were quiet enough that we just didn't care anymore yeah yeah but i needed that energy in my life Sometimes I need a dance punk band fronted by a barbershop quartet yelling at me, and the future heads are the only ones in the world that'll do that. That is true. That is very, very true. And that's sometimes what you need to do is find your niche and just stick with it. Yeah. Similarly, if I want a uh, 80s hair metal band fronted by sexy vampires, Carpe Blonde pretty much got zero competition for that market. I I would say you're probably right, at least certainly from this era. Uh, there's a... Uh... Black Veil Brides might have sort of filled that void for the late 90s or 2000s. But yeah, certainly Concrete Blonde is definitely the epitome of it. Yeah, and certainly some of the, um, some of the early 2000s emo-style bands verge on sexy vampire territory. Oh yeah, My Chemical Romance that is another good example of it, but nobody did it as well, I don't think. That's a fact. I can't speak to My Chemical Romance unless somebody wants to force me to listen to it for this. I like what he has done in other mediums, but that's not the same at all. No, it is really not. It, I never really did sort of enjoy that particular era of, of music, but, but it is what I it is. A, I enjoyed a lot of the music that was coming out during that period. I didn't enjoy that genre in particular. That, and that's, that's what I was referring to is the, yeah, that, that sort of emo screamo stuff. Yeah, this is a much more likable vampire-fronted hard rock band. Exactly. Than what came afterward, which I guess... Brings us pretty close to the end. I would think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, this has been the soundtrack to a life. I'm going to end the episode, as I tend to do, by answering three questions. Fuck yeah, I'm going to listen to more Concrete Blonde going forward. 
this was a delight, and I should have been listening to more Concrete Blonde at the time. I'll probably be exploring the rest of their catalog as well at some point in the very near future. And we are going to end the episode on Tomorrow Wendy. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. Follow along on Facebook and Twitter at SoundtrackCast, SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us. Tell me who your favorite sexy vampire in rock is. Sam, do you want to plug your things? I will, yes. So uh, all the horror is now over, I think, by the time this comes out. But go check us out anyhow. There's still lots of content that you can still listen to because it's all there forever for you. And, of course, uh, I'm the co-host of Invasion Remake, one of the hosting podcasts for the All the Horror event. We are available on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other podcasting apps. You can follow us on Twitter at Invasion Remake. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Invasion of the Remake or via email, invasionoftheremake at gmail.com. And, yeah, give us some five stars, too. We like them. Five stars is a perfect number of stars. You know how to treat a podcast. You're listening to one literally right now. And you know the difference that reviews can make. So review that stuff, especially me, but also especially Invasion of the Remake, which is super fun. We try. I enjoyed very much your attempts to equate the two versions of Throw Mama from the Train. Oh, that was that was a fun one. That was my idea. I'm like, you know what? They're not true remakes, but I love the way that it was inspired. Kind of feels like it is, though. But like the least appropriate remake that you could ever have. It was a fun episode to do. It was really fun to see the original Strangers on a Train and then try and compare it to a Billy Crystal comedy. But this has been the soundtrack to a life. We will be back in two weeks with someone new to discuss something new. Talk to you then. 